if you have your Bibles, you can grab those. Uh, we'll be in Matthew chapter 27. If you don't have those, we'll have it on the screen for you here shortly. We'll get there. Um, uh, but first and foremost, I want to say Happy Easter again. Man, a day that I absolutely love. absolutely love what this means for us in this room that belong to Jesus. Um, man, what a special, uh, special day that we get to celebrate. And so um, it's, it's a day that is very precious but carries so much meaning. So heavy reality behind it, and so it's a celebration, a day that, that brings joy in the midst of such horrific sorrow, and so um, it's a day that I'm excited for as well as just scared to death, and, and I'll explain here shortly what I mean by uh, being scared to death. I, I'll talk about that here, here in a little bit, um, but I, I just believe that everything is validated in the reality of what we celebrate this morning. Everything that the scripture says, everything that the Bible teaches, everything that God has spoken to us is validated in the reality of what today stands for and the reality of what was found over 2,000 years ago or what wasn't found over 2,000 years ago. So I'm going to ask you if you would join me uh, this morning uh, as we pray and ask God to just move in this place once more. God, we love you so very much and we are so thankful, God, for the cross, but God is equally thankful for the empty grave. And so, Lord, we, we celebrate this morning the reality of what you have done. You have risen from the grave. You have defeated sin and shame. And you have paid a price, God, that we could never, ever pay. And so, God, this morning, uh, Lord Jesus, I just pray, God, in the next few minutes that your Holy Spirit would fall heavy upon this place. God, as you already have, I believe. God, to hear your believers, your people cry out this morning as we sing, as we lift high your name. God, I pray your Holy Spirit would just continue to move in this place. And God, what I'm praying for this morning is the same thing that I pray every Sunday, God, is that you would rescue the lost, that you would bring life to the dead this morning in this place. God, that you would save, oh God, how sweet it would be, Lord, this morning if you see fit to save someone that doesn't know you as Savior. So God, we pray that you would uh, uh, bring that realization to their heart, that you would start to woo them and start to draw them. God, just as your word is proclaimed, as your word is preached, God, I have nothing fancy to say. God, we're just going to look at your word and your truth. And God, I pray that in that, Lord, that you would uh, accomplish a multitude of things in this place this morning, that you would save the lost, God, that you would, that you would rescue those that are, that are stuck in sin right now, that are bound in sin, God. Lord, I just pray you move in a mighty way in this place. And God, our heart, our desire here in this place this morning is that you be made much of. God, not one person that has sung. God, not one person that has played an instrument. God, not one person that has done a thing in this place is it for them, for me, for none of us, God, but for your glory, for your great name. Jesus, I pray you show out this morning in this place. God, do something amazing. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, so before we really dive in this morning, what I want to do is I want to try to kind of hope to, uh, I guess, kind of illustrate uh, what we're going to talk about this morning. And so... Um, I don't know about you, but anybody ever borrowed anything? Come on, this, 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 we, we're going to interact a little bit. Any borrowers out there? Good. Any lenders? Somebody ever lend anybody something? They didn't bring it back? Did you get ticked? I'm just joking. You don't have to answer that question. It's, you can. Yeah, I see the hand. Good. Me too. Um, good. Well, it's crazy because like, we borrow all kinds of crazy things. And so if you're a parent, you know exactly what this is. This is a do not leave home without it, right? Yeah, praise his name. That's right. Yep. Preach. New dad back there. I know it. That's exactly right. Because the thing is, and it's happened to us before, we've got a, a, a soon-to-be seven-year-old, and we've got um, a three-year-old, and uh, the potty training stuff, all that, kinds of, all that kind of stuff that goes on, and, and so you get out there. I remember one time in small group, we, we were there, and uh, of course, our youngest potty training, all that good stuff, had an accident, and we looked in our diaper bag in just sheer terror, you know, because you don't want to chance it if you're potty training, and they've already went through one pair of underwear, and you don't have a you don't want, that's not something you're willing to chance, especially in somebody else's home, you know what I'm saying? And so, luckily, somebody in our group had some diapers and wipes, and we could borrow the diaper, and so we borrowed a diaper. Um, what about one of these things right here? Yeah. Oh. I'm not going to fire it up. Like, all of the man in me wants to just crank this sucker and let it go. My luck, I wouldn't be able to. Somebody have to come up and help me. So, I don't know why y'all laugh and get giddy at stuff like that. But things like this, right? I mean, just normal stuff, like, like, like a weed eater, uh, maybe some, some loppers. All I got to say is if you're borrowing loppers from a friend, they don't love you because they should have the electric one and give you that. Like, like that. But loppers, things like that, is stuff you borrow. Or, or one of these things, um, like not just everybody has a, a ladder handy, right? And so sometimes you need to borrow a ladder. 
um, just to get, like, if you're painting, and if you are, don't call me. There's other people that would love to come serve you and help you. Um, a lot of repentance from that. But, but you know, so, like, there's, there's, things that we, there's things that we borrow, like, like a basketball, right? Like, so, so maybe you're out playing, and you need a ball, or you get some guys together, and you've got them coming over, and so you may need a ball to, to kind of borrow for a little bit and to be able to play, to hoop it up, all that good stuff. Don't drop it. Yeah. And so, so there's, just, there's tons of things, right, in life that we borrow. Oh, hold on. Let me see something. Anybody got a five, maybe a ten? <laughs> it's funny you laugh now. Nobody wants to borrow. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a lender. I'll lend. Any fives? Any t- anybody? You, anybody? I need, like, you got a five? Anybody? You know, like, like sometimes you'll, you'll let people borrow money. Could be, could not be a good idea, things like that. And so as I was looking, as I was looking and just kind of praying through, um, praying through this week and trying to figure out, God, what, what do you want me to say? God, where do you want us to go? What do you want us to look at? So this whole idea of borrowing hit me. Hit me hard. And so as I was looking and doing some research, there are millions of people who use websites and apps, different apps, to share their homes, to share their car, to, to, to transport people, all kinds of things like that. There's tons of apps that, that are geared to allowing you to borrow or to lend you something. Uh, there's a company that, uh, that allows people to share things like drills, uh, bicycle pumps, I mean anything, just connecting them to other people, allowing them to have things that they don't normally have for a bit to, to use. There's actually this, um, this company called Peerby, uh, which stands for Peer Nearby. And so the founder is a man by the name of Dan Waddenpool. Uh, he says that he had this idea, this startup for this, this app after his house burned down. And after his house burned down, he, he needed some things. He didn't have everything just readily available. And so he, he needed some things. And so as he found, uh, he asked some of his neighbors, some people that he knew if he could borrow some things. And so in that, it just spurned this idea. Man, I, I need to do this. I need to create an app to help other people. To help other people uh, create this bond, to be able to allow them to use things that maybe they don't have. And so he started up an app, started up a little business to be able to, to do that. And so this morning, I want to talk about what I f- have found, because there's probably tons of crazy things that people have asked to borrow. I mean, just crazy, just crazy things that, that maybe somebody's asked you to borrow. Maybe you've lended it, maybe you haven't. But I don't, I don't think whatever the crazy thing is that you have lent or you have borrowed will even touch what we're going to talk about this morning. And so the thing that we see borrowed this morning that we're going to celebrate is a tomb, is a grave. And so as we jump in here in Matthew chapter 27, I I just believe it says a good bit about the person who allows you to borrow something that that has value to them, that that has meaning to them. And so either they've purchased it or they've acquired it, and they they allow you to have it for a bit for use. And so the first thing I want to look at is the one that's going to lend something. The uh, The thing is, the one in this story is going to give his tomb away. I mean, think about that for a moment. Somebody comes up to you, hey, hey, you got a grave plot? Yeah, yeah, you, you got a little casket that goes with it? Yeah, yeah. Can I borrow that? You want my grave plot and my casket? Yeah, yeah. You're going to use them at the same time in the same place? And Yeah, no. No, you, you can't. I mean, just how crazy, how crazy is that thought? I, I need it, but it's only going to be for three days. Huh? So you're going to die for three days? Yeah. And you're going to use my casket and... Grave site, plot, three days. No, I'm not, I'm not just going to give you my, no, that costs money. Like, that's, that's, like, that's a heavy hitter. No. How do you know you're going to die? Like, there's all kinds of questions. And, but the reality is this, in the story this morning, that was never the thought. That was never thought. As crazy as that thought may be, that was never the intention of the man that's going to let somebody borrow something. Matthew 27, 57. This is what God's Word says. It says, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea. And so this is a huge deal here. This is very, very big. And it's probably something that you've just read over before, maybe never given much thought to. But the reality is this this very thing has been told. This was told would happen over 700 years before it took place. Isaiah 53, 9. Just listen to what the prophet Isaiah says. It says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. That's just foretelling of Jesus. Read it like this. And they made Jesus' grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. That is a scripture that is prophesied 700 years before Jesus would go to the cross, would die, and resurrect. And so what we know about um, 
this rich man here from Arimathea, it says this, whose name is Joseph. And so Joseph is a prominent member of the council of the Sanhedrin. He was waiting on the kingdom of God, waiting for the kingdom of God, is what Mark 15, 43 tells us. The Bible also tells us about this man, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, over in the book of Luke 23, verses 50 through 51, that he is a good and righteous man. It says that he had not consented to their plan and action to condemn and execute Jesus. So that lets us know a little bit about this man who's going to give up his grave, going to give up his tomb for Jesus. It also goes on in, in uh, Matthew 27 and says this, that he was a disciple of Jesus. So sometime in the past three years of Jesus' earthly ministry, Joseph becomes a follower. Joseph puts his faith in who Jesus Christ is. And so he was, a, he was a one that, that, that kept it a secret for fear of the Jews. And so the original language here, there's this thought that's carried on with Joseph. As it reads, as we look at it, who was also a disciple of Jesus. It suggests that Joseph must have uh, heard him preach somewhere along the way or maybe seen some of his uh, miracles or, or heard him teach. And, and, and in that, uh, he comes to faith. He, he believes in who Jesus is. But what we're going to see in the scripture this morning is this, is that he's about to step out in a huge way. He's about to step out in a big way. Look at verse 58. It says, when he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So he steps out, not big on making his faith known. And he goes and he asks for something huge, the body of Jesus. And look at Pilate's response. He ordered it to be given to him. And so really, in this scripture, Joseph probably had little hope of getting the body. In this time, it was either given to the family or it was just kind of thrown in an open grave or kind of this garbage heap to be done away with. So reality is he probably had no, no earthly uh, realization that it would probably be given to him. He figured it would be denied or maybe some questions would come from it or Pilate would be uh, 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 anxious toward him or aggressive toward him. But none of those things happened and Pilate hands it over. And look at verse 59. And Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen shroud. So he didn't expect Jesus to get up from the grave. That's what it's showing us. He, see, he put such careful attention into preparing the body for a, a permanent interment. Like he expected him to be there. This was it. And so I just, I just love the sovereignty of God. As we read and as we look at this story and we see what's taking place on this day, as Jesus is crucified, Joseph goes and he asks for the body. It's granted and it's given to him. And I just, I just love how God works and how he moves. And sovereignty is just a big fancy theological word for meaning that God's in control of all things at all times. There's nothing that disrupts him. There's nothing that throws him off. There's nothing that frustrates or aggravates him. He's actively moving in all things. And so Joseph did all of this before Friday evening. Well, because the Sabbath was coming, and you couldn't have a dead body on the cross on the Sabbath. And so what we know is he goes and he asks for the body. And in this, he doesn't even realize that he's fulfilling God's word. He, he doesn't even realize that, that he's fulfilling all that God wants to accomplish in this evening, in this time. And so even, Je even Joseph did all of that for personal gain and for personal reasoning. It wasn't selfish gain or selfish personal reasoning, but it seemed to be right that this innocent man who died on a cross, who was crucified, innocent man, that, that, that he take him and he do a proper burial for this, for this man that has died. And so J Joseph moves with such great haste because just like every other person in the story, every other person in the word of God is being moved under God's divinely ordained and scriptural, scripturally predicted power. I mean, God foretold of this. God was in control of this. It looks like there's a hiccup in the plan, but all the while, God's behind the scenes moving and doing and accomplishing his will. And so, I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't maybe know if maybe you've come here because a friend's invited you, or maybe you're a critic, or maybe you're like, man, can we just get through this? I've got a donut to get to, or a family picture. I'm doing it for, for my wife or for a friend that invited me. I don't know what your motive is here this morning, but I just believe the more you look at God's word honestly and objectively, the more convincing it is of its inerrancy. The more convincing of how inerrant and perfect and right it is. I mean, that doesn't just happen. They don't just turn over a body to anybody. Family on a garbage heap. And especially this high profile of an execution. And then look at verse 60. It says, and it laid it in his own new tomb. There's the borrowed tomb. 
there's Joseph, his own new tomb, Joseph's tomb. It was just going to really be a gift to Jesus is what it was going to be. It was going to be out of honor and respect for this man that he thought so much of, that, he, that he's committed his life to. And look at what it says. It says, which he had cut in the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb. And what does he do? He, he goes away. See, graves were usually secured in some way. They were usually secured and, and held down, and so they, they brought a, a large stone and they placed it there at the entrance. And what this did is it prevented a few things. It prevented animals from getting in there, uh, eating the decomposed body, taking, taking things like that. It prevented gr uh, grave robbers from coming in and stealing things that were normally uh, buried with those that were, that were uh, in the tomb, the things that would be put in the tomb with people. It prevented those kinds of things from taking place, those kinds of things from happening. But what we know is this, is that Jesus was no normal executed prisoner, by no means. Look at how the story continues in verse 62. It says this, it says, The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and all the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. So the crazy thing is this, is Jesus is dead. Jesus is dead. If you read the crucifixion, we'll get to that in a minute, I'm about to jump ahead. If you read the story, everything points to the fact and the reality that he's dead. That Jesus is not there, that his life is taken and gone. And so what we see here is that these men are still concerned about Jesus. They're still up in arms about his influence and, and what may be conspired to happen as a result of this. And look at what the scriptures say in verse 63. And they said, sir, we remember how that imposter said. See, they're still pointing back. They're still hurling insults at him. That imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure till the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. What they're saying is this, is that you need to take care of this. We need to do something to prove and make sure and finally shut these crazy Christian people up that are following Jesus. All this ruckus, all of his teachings, Everything that he stands for, we need to squash that. We need to get rid of it, make it go away. And so what we need to do is we need to put that big, uh, we need to secure the grave. We need to put soldiers there to wash the grave, to watch over the grave, to make sure that this doesn't happen. Because if this happens, what he has said is going to happen, things are going to get crazy. You're talking about a, a, a blowing up of what's happening now. It'll continue to get worse. So we need to make sure we do everything that we can to get ahead of this thing. And so 65, Paul said, go then, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it secure as you can. So they went to the, to the tomb, and they secured it by sealing the stone and setting a guard. And so the whole purpose of this was to prevent a hoax and causing this message of Jesus to continue to spread. They wanted to wipe it out. But even in this, God would use their unbelief and preparation of all that they're doing here to make sure that the tomb was secure God didn't want anybody getting in and taking him out. God didn't want anything happening to the body either. He wanted to prove the reality of what was going to happen three days later. So, so this was all part of God's plan. Absolutely, let's get some guards. I can just imagine God sitting on his throne in heaven watching down and be like, are you kidding me? They're doing it? Holy Spirit, come check this out. This is just me playing. Look, look at what. I don't even know what the Holy Spirit would be like. I can just imagine. Like, they're doing it. <laughs> like giving each other a high five. I, mean, I, just, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just thinking. I mean, all the device, all, all the, the well-laid plans of man falls woefully short to the power and majesty of God. And while they're down there and they're working and doing, trying to secure this grave, trying to shut these people up, trying to get over the reality of who Jesus Christ is, all they're doing is working perfectly into the plans of God. You see how he's sovereign? You see how he's in control? That should give us hope, church, that even in our worst day, God is still moving somehow, some way for his glory and for our good. And so in that, as they try to eradicate this reality of who Jesus is, God just allows it to happen. That's perfect. Maybe move it a little closer. Push it a little tighter up against the tomb. Yeah, but right there, boys. Yeah. Maybe two of you should stand right there. Maybe another over here. Yeah, yeah, but right, spears, good. Shields, absolutely. Right there, that's perfect. Now stay. Don't go anywhere. I mean, I can just imagine. But, but the question I have this morning is this, what if Christ had never risen? 
what if that had happened? If Jesus never took another breath, never left the tomb, never appeared to his disciples, never ascended into heaven, if he never lived again, and church, hear me, then we would never stop dying. If Jesus did not resurrect, we would never stop dying. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says this. 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still asleep in your sin. What the Apostle Paul writes to the uh, believers there in Corinth is simply says this. I mean, if, if Jesus wasn't who Jesus said he was and he didn't raise from the dead, your faith is, is craziness. You're still in your sin. You're still in your guilt. You're still in your condemnation. You're still alienated from God. You're still unforgiven. That's what the Apostle Paul is telling them. And then look at what he says in verse 18. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Those of us who say we believe in Jesus, if Jesus has not risen from the grave, if he is not alive, ruling and reigning, then we're doomed. And all of those who have said they put their faith and trust in him, they're, they're gone. They've perished. It's over for them. There's no hope. It's, it's done. The point of life would be just to live it up now. Why give in to this foolishness? Because life is so short. Life is so short. However long you live, I mean, why give in to the foolishness of that if, if this is for nothing? If, if Jesus haven't, haven't raised from the dead. He says this, he says this, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. What Paul says is if, if this is just a hoax, if this is just a story made up, if this is just some craziness that people got together to try to do, then in all people in the whole world, we're the most to be pitied. We're the most ridiculous, the most crazy. And so if only the hope is in this life, how horrific would that be? I mean, think about it for a moment. I mean, everybody in this room are for all different walks of life, all different things that we've been, been through, been a part of. Maybe you've got a lot, maybe you don't have much. Maybe you haven't experienced a lot, maybe you've experienced a ton. I mean, think about it. If this is all that there is, how horrific of a reality would that be? And what makes it even worse is this, is that we would carry on our sin, our shame, our pain through the grave into something far worse than death if Jesus had not risen from the grave. We would carry all of that far, far through the reality of life. And so if his final breath on the cross had been his final breath, then we'd never stop dying. We would never stop dying. Fear would rule our short and hopeless lives. This would be the reality of it. That would be our destiny. That would be our end. So what about the empty tomb? What about the empty tomb? And again, maybe you're here this morning and you just think I'm crazy and this stuff that I'm talking about, you're just trying to appease, or you're, whatever the, the deal is. And I just want to say welcome and thank you for coming. And so what I want to do is I want to I try to prove the reality that, that Jesus didn't raise from the grave. Uh, what I want to I give you some ammunition this morning. I want us to, to talk and I want to share some, some theories that are out there. And, and I don't want us to do this. I want us to just disconnect from a moment. I want us just to, to, to use our brain and let's, let's reason and logic together for just a second, can we? Because I want to entertain the thoughts this morning, not just in this room, but, but all over the world. And so one of the theories, I don't know if you're familiar with it, it's called the swoon theory. And what the swoon theory says this is that Jesus did not really die. He only swooned. Therefore, his disciples saw only a revived and resuscitated Jesus. So what it says is this, is that Christ uh, was nailed to the cross. He suffered from shock, pain, and the loss of blood. But instead of actually dying... He only fainted or swooned from exhaustion. And seven, several hours later, he revived in the coolness of the tomb and arose and departed. That's one of the theories. That's one of the thoughts of what happened to Jesus, that he just swooned. Man just passed out. They laid him in the tomb. He just gets up and he walks out. Except the problem I have with that. Anybody familiar with crucifixion? Anybody familiar with how horrific and how graphic and how awful that is on a person's body? I mean, the 39 lashes that he took, the cat of nine tails, as, as those trained Roman soldiers would grab the whip with pieces of bone and sharp glass and, 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 and all of those things, just as they would, would whip it and as they whipped it and they pulled into the body and just ripped flesh and his veins and his muscles exposed, beaten to a bloody pulp. Isaiah prophesied and said that he'd be a man that wouldn't even be recognized. 
And so all the depictions that Hollywood has, all the, the pictures that we've got that we try to use to show the crucifixion falls woefully short. And so after he was, he was abused and, and mistreated there and the crown of thorns placed on his head and they, they give him the, the cross beam to carry for his cross and he can't even do it so they have to pull someone out of the crowd to, to, to carry his cross for him because he can't physically do it. Why? Because he's exhausted because of the blood loss because he's dying. And they take him and then they lay him on the cross and they nail through his, his hands, his wrists, his feet. And, and as they lifted up the cross and his body jars as it goes in the ground, what they say is that the worst part is not being nailed to that cross. That you die because you suffocate. Because what they say is that the body is, is extended and the feet there. And, and the only way to breathe is you've got to push up. So can you imagine after the scourging on his raw back as he pushes up on that, on that wood of that, of that tree, of that cross, as it just rubs that, that, that sensitive flesh that's just been ripped to shreds? Just to take a, grass, a gasp of air, a breath. And so he does all of that. But he's just swooned. He just passed out from that. I don't know, but I get a paper cut and I fall apart. I, I do. Like, there was one time I was, like, slicing some onions. We had this, like, really cool, like, little slicer. And I'm slicing it and I nicked my finger. And I'm, and I'm like, I'm over here, like, falling apart. I'm like, baby, it's gone from the knuckle down. I'm done. And she's like, let me see. And it was, like, it was like a flesh wound, like barely a flesh wound. I'm like, I'm dying over there. Like, I'm on the floor. I'm laying. Like, I'm kicking. I'm like, tell my kids I love them. Like, it is, I need a blood transfusion, something. And she's like, Scott, it barely even took the skin. I'm like, it felt like it, felt like it was like to hear. But Jesus goes to the cross, and he endures all of that for us. And to say that he is soon... To say that he is swooned, not to mention what's recorded in the scriptures and other history books, is that as the time was drawing near and the Sabbath was growing close, they had to get the prisoners off the cross. And so normally what they would do is they hung there, they would come by, and they're, so, they're just so gracious, these Roman soldiers, as in, the, in the art of torturing and death, and they would come by and they would, they would break the prisoners' legs, big club, and just break their legs. And as they would break their legs, what that would do is prevent them from being able to pull up. So what happens? They suffocate and they die. They come to Jesus, they don't do that. Why? Because they believe he's already dead. Oh, there you go. There's the loophole. Until one of the soldiers takes a spear and pierces in his side at the rib. This side. And what it does is it goes through and it punctures where the heart's at. and says that blood and water flow. Which would give us evidence of a heart that's ruptured. So the swoon theory, does that make sense? And then not to mention that he showed up to over 500 different disciples, showed up over, over, over a number of 40 days to a number of people. All I know is in high school, I broke my foot, and I couldn't walk from here to the door. And this man went through what he went through on the cross and before the cross for us. So does the swoon theory, does that really make sense? Does, does that, does that, did he just fell asleep or he just passed out from blood loss, and all of a sudden he wakes back up and he walks out of this guarded tomb? The last thing they would want to do is that for that to happen. The next thing that, that, that maybe we could look at about this empty tomb or maybe uh, a conclusion of why he was stolen or something happened to him was a hallucination theory. And what this theory says is that all of Christ's post-resurrection appearances were really only supposed appearances because they were actually hallucinations by the people who saw him. And so in this way, all post-resurrection appearances can be dismissed. But think about that for a second. Twelve disciples, over 500 he appeared to. They're just all hallucinating. Every single person is hallucinating and making this up, knowing that their life would be at, at, at stake if they, if they were found out to be doing that. Does, that. does that really make sense? Is that really plausible? What about the theft theory? The theft theory says this, that the, the disciples stole the body and claimed that he rose from the dead. Okay, that kind of makes sense, except do you not remember those cowardly 12 men? Peter, Jesus, I'll be with you to the end, man. You're dying, I'm going with you. Until what? He goes to die. And then he tucks his tail and he runs because, because they may recognize it's him. And he denies Jesus three times is what the scripture tells us. Those cowardly guys that wouldn't stand up, that wouldn't be there, that, that wouldn't even stay awake to pray with Jesus as he's in the garden, 
those, those boys, I don't want them on my side fighting for me. They can't even stay awake just to pray. You really, you really think they're going to sneak in all stealthy and ninja-like, roll on the ground? Peter, get him, take him. Matthew, over there, drop it down the rope. Uh, you, you really think they're going to do that? These cowardly, no backbone kind of guys? And yes, I say that, and I mean that because what we find out is over in the book of Acts, until the Holy Spirit comes and indwells them, they have, they have no outspokenness, no boldness, no real zeal at all until the Holy Spirit takes up residence in their life, in their heart. So does that really make sense that these, these cowardly, untrained men would sneak in and steal the body from guarded Roman soldiers? Another one may be this, the unknown tomb theory. And so one of the earliest theories is that the disciples... They didn't know where the tomb was, where it was located, and they, could have, um, they couldn't find the empty grave. And so this theory depends on the belief that those who were crucified were tossed into a common pit and were not allowed to be buried. So what, a, what about the empty tomb? What about that? So, so they don't know? But the scripture here tells us that, that even those in charge of that day, that they're very cautious, they're very thought out. There's a plan already put into place to, to guard and to make sure that this tomb is sealed and protected. So the question I ask is this, was it borrowed? We need to know what happens, and Paul in that same scripture in Corinthians answers it for us. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, as we continue, says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. Paul says it's true. All of you at Corinth, man, hear. Hear who this Jesus is. Hear what he has done. It's not made up. It's not a story that, that he has resurrected from the dead. See, for as by man came death through Adam, sin entered the world, death came by man by Adam, by man also came the resurrection from the dead. That's Jesus. He, he is the, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. See, death couldn't disrupt his plan. Our king borrowed the tomb before securing his victory over death forever. And his victory is our victory if we're willing to die with him into everlasting life. Paul said the tomb was borrowed. Jesus didn't need the tomb for an extended period of time. Why? Because he wasn't going to lay there forever. He didn't need a place to rest his body. Why? Because this body doesn't die. His lives forever. He comes back, he defeats death, he defeats sin. He does all of those things and renders the grave empty, renders, renders death helpless, secures our victory, is what he does. That's what we celebrate this morning. So do we believe that the tomb is empty? Absolutely. Do we believe that it was just borrowed? Absolutely. One of the most crazy things to ever be borrowed. So the question is this as I close. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? The first thing is this. God defeated death for you and me. God defeats death for you and me. So if you believe in Jesus, death can't hold you either. If you have faith and relationship with Christ, death cannot hold you. Death doesn't even touch you. Death is just a passageway by where we get to the presence of God for all eternity. John eleven twenty five 25 says this. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. You die here, but you live forever. We've been given a soul that lives for eternity. And so Jesus rose to prove that he had defeated death. See, until he, until he rose, death seemed to swallow up every ounce of life and hope from generation to generation. That's what looked like was accomplished by death. See, we hear things like this, for the wages of sin is death, and none is righteous, no, not one, Romans says that. So, so how could sinners have any hope of escaping death? How could any lost person have hope of escaping death? See, God had promised everlasting life centuries before the resurrection was revealed. It was certain for his chosen, redeemed, and adopted sons and daughters that you can, in fact, live forever with him. That's his plan. So the reality of the empty tomb was this. God defeated death for us. The second reality as I close this, and I'm going to need some help for just a second. I've got a buddy that's going to come up here. The second reality is this, is that your bondage to sin is great. But Jesus is greater. Come on up. Your bondage 
and captivity to sin is great, but what I have learned is simply this, is that tomb being borrowed, Jesus is far greater. I'm gonna ask you to stand right here, brother. My buddy Daniel here. So what sin does is it handcuffs us. It, it, it puts us into bondage. It puts us into to captivity. And so that's what sin does. And the reality is this, what Scripture teaches is every single one of us is born into this. Every single one of us. So what happens is simply this, sins. And, and you can just think of sin for a second. There's all kind of sin, but maybe, maybe spiritual apathy. Apathy. That's, that's a sin. That's a struggle, right, that we, we all probably struggle with. Anybody in this room, uh, as, as a believer, man, just becoming apathetic. And so what happens is that's sin, bondage, chains, uh, maybe gossip. No gossipers in here, right? It's Sunday morning Easter, right? No, nobody, at least you wouldn't admit to it, right? Not on Easter Sunday, I won't. God knows. And what I know is simply this is that there's every single one of us in this place this morning is probably guilty of gossip too, sin, bondage. Because what I've learned about gossip, what I've learned about that is, is if you're not careful, you can misconstrue the story, you can forget Gossip doesn't build up. Gossip tears down. That doesn't bring honor and glory to God. Maybe something like this is another sin or struggle, lying. And what it does is just every lie you tell, you have to tell another one to try to cover it up so you don't forget. So lying, sin, separation. And, and the reality is this, just being born, we're born apathetic, we're born liars. No, I've lied, and so I'm not a liar. No, no, you, you lie because you're a liar. That's what happens. Gossip, you, you got, we know why we gossip, to make us look better, to make us feel better. We like to see other people struggle and hurt. Uh, maybe this is one that you struggle with that's a sin, pride. Now, I don't struggle with that. I'm just the best, right? We say things like that, uh-uh. I mean, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the goodest is not a word, but I'm going to say it because I'm the goodest there's ever been. Praise God. If everybody liked me half as much as I like myself, it would be a better place, wouldn't it? Pride's not something I struggle with. What about this one? This is, this is a good one right here. What about bitterness? Hmm. Well, if they just wouldn't have done that, then I wouldn't have to be bitter. Forgiveness is not an option, is it? No, uh-uh. I don't get mad, I get even. That's the thought process in our world today. So bitterness. Bitterness. We allow those deep-seated feelings to just well up in us and stay there where, where it's just it's venom is what it is, and that helps lead to gossip. That helps lead to, to pride and to lying. All of these things feed one another. But what, what about this? Because there's probably no struggle with this at all. What about selfishness? Mm. Selfishness. What selfishness does is simply says this. Pardon me, brother. I'm going to go right here for a second. You're getting, getting kind of full with all your sin. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Pray for my brother Daniel up here. Because I've got a list, man. Your wife give me all of this stuff. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> but selfishness, right? And see, what selfishness says is all about me, all about what I want, all about what I like, what I appreciate, what makes me feel the best. And, and so a real fun place to play with this, and I don't want to get too deep into it yet, but, but one of the fun places to play with selfishness is in marriage. Oh, and everyone's like, preach it, brother. And every husband's like, why did I come again this morning? Yeah. When the reality is this, and, and I'm a dude, so I can, I can just beat us up for a little bit because I'm a man and I know and I'm married. What I signed up for, what I said that I was going to do is love my wife like Christ loves the church. And so what that means is it's never about me. And I'm just going to be honest with you, I do a pathetic job of that a lot of the time. But because I want it to be about me. Again, pride is not an issue for me, but I like me, you know? And that's usually what prideful people say. I don't struggle with pride or selfishness, no. But the reality of it is that. Selfishness is all about, and that's sin, all about me, all about me. Because what I've learned in the scriptures is, is that life is never about us. Never about us. Ever. We will never, hear me, we will never be the star of the story. Well, because we've already got a star of the story. That we are just, we are just uh, 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 role players in this story that helps lift up and make much of the one that it's about. That's our role. That's what we do every single, so it's never, so, so hear me, just let me just ease your mind this morning. If you don't know Jesus, and maybe this morning is this morning that God's just stirring in your heart, the reality is just, it'll never be about you. But what I've learned too is this, is that if you're lost here and you don't know Jesus, it's still not going to be about you either, brother, because it's going to be about the one that it's about. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That's what the scriptures teach. 
And all I've got to say is if the one that borrowed a tomb that was dead, that is no longer dead, that said over 700 years ago that he wasn't going to be dead, and he gets up from the grave, and he is out of the grave, and he shows up, and he rules, and he rules, I'm going to take his word over ours. That's all I know. And so what I've seen in Scripture is that it's all about him always. What about this one? This is a good one. Any parents in a place this morning? What about worry? Mm. No, he didn't. Yeah, he did. A little worry over here. Any worry warts? What worry does is show that you don't trust God to do what he said he's going to do and accomplish. But I've got kids. So do I. And you know what I've learned? As much as I love this little boy and as much as I love that little boy over there, they're not mine. God has gifted me. And do you know what? There's nothing that I can do to protect them and guard them. Nothing. Nothing. What I've learned is this, and my wife hates when I say this. Like if I'm going to go on a trip or I'm going to go somewhere. I can remember one time we went on a mission trip, and I said, baby, don't you worry. Don't you worry. I can't die till God's ready for me. Don't you say that. But it's a reality. Nothing, nothing can harm me or hurt me till God says it's time. I don't die till he's ready for me. And what we've seen this morning is nothing upsets him or frustrates him. Nothing throws his plans off. Nothing. So, so why, why would I worry and fret? God's got them. God is, God is sovereign and well aware. God's got me. God's got us. And what worry does and shows us that, hey, God, I know more than you. My plans are better than your plans. God, if you would just take my advice for a moment and do what I think you should do, then there you go. What about, what about this one, disobedience? So we've got some disobedience going on over here. And all the kids in the house are like, oh, we were doing so good. Were we? You just didn't listen to your parents, right? Come on, parents, help me out here. Yeah, amen, I heard you. But you know what I've learned? Is usually there's a lot of learned behavior in the home. And, and what, I, what I found out is simply this, is, is whenever I look back and I want my kids to obey, it, usually what it is, it's just little shadows and glimpses of how I disobey God. And so it's crazy. I'm like, Brody, stop. Brody, quit. Bro, Bennett. Oh, we're going to go do with these kids. And as I, as I look and as I watch them and as we tell them no, we tell them don't, or we tell, as I watch them kind of disobey and kind of go their own way and do their own thing, what I'm reminded of is, man, as many times in a day that I say, uh, like there was a while where I thought my kids would probably think well, their name was Stop. Brody, stop. Brody, stop Miller. That's his name. Or Bennett, stop Miller. I was like, good night. Are we ever going to get to say anything else? But as much as I'm reminded of that, as much as I thought of that, what the reality is, is, is think about how much God says that to me in a day. You, how often we disobey. Hey, hey, go, go talk to that person at, at the lunch table. Are you serious? They're weird. Yeah, so are you. Get over it. <laughs> but they act different. Or they talk funny. Or they, yeah, yeah, so do you. You're mine and you belong to me. And whenever I tell you to do something, when you don't do it, then what that's called is disobedience. And what that's called is sin. And what we do again is put Jesus on the cross. That's what I've learned. That's what sin does is always puts Christ on the cross. So disobedience, no matter how big or how small, little disobedience is ultimately disobedience, period. So disobedience is a sin. What about the thought life? Oh, he's not going to. Yes, he is. It's Easter Sunday, and I've got you for just a few more minutes. The thought life can be just a... Because, see, we think sin, all sin is just external, so somebody cuts us off, and we kind of give them one of those things for a moment, and they just go on, and we're like, okay, we're good. Nobody saw me. No kids in the car. I'm good. Okay, God, I'm sorry, and we kind of do our thing go on. But when they cut us off and we don't do anything, we think in our minds, in our hearts, that's when it gets ugly. Because for us, we think sin is external, and what everybody can see is the problem. But the reality is this, is it starts somewhere far greater than just the external stuff. That's just the diagnosis of an internal problem, which is the heart. So, so what about this? What, like the thought life, what about... What about this? What about hate? No, I don't hate anybody. You don't? What about that person that did that thing to you five, six, seven, eight years ago? Have you ever gotten over it? Have you ever forgiven them? Have you ever, like Columbine, it was the 20-year anniversary of Columbine where, where, where somebody comes in and shoots up kids for saying they believe in Jesus in a school out in Colorado. And, and I was reading a story this week, and as I was reading the story this week of that, of that anniversary, um, uh, one of the moms of the girl that was, hey, don't you get rid of that sin? I heard it, you heard it. One of the moms of a girl that was murdered in that has had conversation with the murderer. Multiple conversation. To the point of where, where she's trying to strike up a relationship. She said that I've forgiven you. And she tries to share the gospel and she tries to love on. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? 
they, they, took, they took your child. I mean, I would be angry. There would be bitterness and anger. I couldn't imagine. But no, 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 no. she's forgiven. And, and I just think, like, 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 that's internal. That's what help leads to bitterness. That's, what, that's just venom flowing up in us. What, what about this? Any adulterers in the room this morning? Easy, Scott, what you talk about? This one, lust. And so what we like to do sometimes is I like to play with the Ten Commandments and ask you, have you ever? And, and usually, like, like we, we fail miserably. Any other gods before God? Yes, we all worship something that's not God. Um, so we have that happen. Uh, all of that, that kind of stuff. Anybody lied? Yes, we've all told a lie. Anybody stole? Stole. And I just have to define it because we're like sophisticated people, so we think. And so no, I've never. If you've taken something that's not yours... And borrowing for an extended period of time doesn't count. If you take something that's not yours, that's called stealing. And that's, that makes you a thief is what that makes you. And I don't care how old or how young you are. So we're all guilty of that. until. And then I get to like these where, where I say, okay, has anybody murdered anybody? Because it says do not murder. And I'm like, okay, finally I get one right. Until I say this, that Jesus comes along. And what he says is this, is if you have hate in your heart towards someone, then you're guilty of murder. Mm. Okay, so now we're over for whatever. Oh, 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 adultery. Oh, yeah, I can, I can get that one. Again, until Jesus comes along and says that if you look at someone with lust in your heart, then you're, you're guilty of adultery. So we're, oh, we, we fail miserably. So all of those are sins. But what I've learned is this, is that, that our bondage to sin is great. But what I found out is that Jesus is greater. And so what Jesus does is simply this, is he comes and he cuts those bonds and he gets rid of and he takes for us all of this stuff, all of the sin and separation that we have. He takes it all on the cross for us and he dies willingly for us and he pays a price that we can never ever pray and he breaks the bondage of sin for us is what he does. Yes, the bondage of sin is great, but Jesus is so much greater. He rose to prove that we really can be saved from our sins. And hear me, we all need that. We need rescued from us, from our sin, from our shame, all of that stuff. We don't deserve salvation, and we could never achieve it on our own. But if Christ did not raise from the dead, he would have lain next to him in the grave is what we would end up doing. But that's not the reality of who Jesus is. And so what we know is that he's not dead, so therefore we have a hope. See, sin condemns us to everlasting judgment and never-ending torture is what the Bible teaches and so sin enslaves us to death. But Christ rose to cancel that debt. Nails it to the cross and sets us free from sin so we can live for God. Galatians 5.1 says this. It says, for our forgiveness and freedom, Christ has died, risen, and set us free. The empty tomb points to the reality that Jesus is far greater. Daniel, thank you. That's what this Sunday means. That's what a borrowed tomb means for us. And the last thing about the empty tomb means this, is that nothing can disrupt God's plan for us. Nothing can disrupt God's plan for us. See, the death of Jesus looked like the single greatest defeat that God's people would ever experience and have to face. Instead of ascending to a throne and conquering his enemies, the promised king had been humiliated and crucified. But at the precise moment when it looked like evil had won, God was wielding every ounce of wickedness to accomplish his greatest victory. And Jesus rose to prove that God is sovereign even over the worst evil in the world. And then ultimately that act of rebellion and injustice, God was pivoting all of history with love to save and satisfy his people. And by raising his son from the dead on Easter, he promised to work all things, including the hardest and most painful things in your life for the good of all of his sons and daughters. So church, hear me this morning. We gather to celebrate that the tomb was only borrowed for three days. That's why we gather here. That's why we are here in this place. So as the band comes back up, as they come back up, I want to share with you why Easter scares me. I want to share with you why Easter scares me. Because today is a day that, that gets people here. De today is a day that causes people to gather in this place until Christmas comes, or maybe this is the last time you'll darken the doorsteps. And so I know we live in a culture and we live in a world that says, do you believe in Jesus? And, and most everybody would say yes. But it's just believing in Jesus. Is that salvation? And the scriptures would teach absolutely. But I think the problem that I have is how you would define faith and belief in who Jesus Christ is. And so that's why this day scares me so much. Because again, being in the South, this is the right good, where else would you be on Easter Sunday morning? 
gathered in a church, doing the right thing, hearing the right thing, dressed up, looking the part. Yeah, absolutely we would. And so my fear is so often is that this day will allow us to get by and allow us a false security, maybe even to call yourself a Christian. And so I just want to lovingly challenge you here this morning. Just by what God says and what he's called me to do, if there is no desire for obedience in your life to Christ, then chances are you're, you're lost. If there's no obedience, if there's no longing for, if this is the only time you think of him, if this is the only time you worship him, if this is the only time you're reminded of how great he is and what he wants from you, which is all of you, and if, if this is the only time that you think that or you're reminded of that, then that church, there's a problem. There's a problem. That's not salvation. And salvation is total surrender, giving my whole life over faith. Yes, I believe in Jesus, but it's more than just a historical figure that did something cool on the cross and performed some pretty cool tricks. And he is a resurrected God that demands our life, our obedience, our all. That's what salvation looks like. So Scott, what you're saying is that I have to die to every, yes. But what if I don't want to give up? What I've learned is this, is that your want to gets changed when you put your faith in Jesus. But what I also want to share with you is this, is that sometimes my want to's get, get, off, get off kilter. Sometimes my want to's looks like this. And you know what God has to do? He has to remind me so lovingly that God died for that and purchased lust. Man, you, you don't know. The things of this world, no, you don't need that. You need me. Quit lusting for things that won't fulfill you, that won't, that won't keep you. Oh, spiritual apathy, that's a struggle. Man, I've been saved. I was saved at 11 and I'm 35 now. I wanted to do that math in my head, but I'm afraid to give a number. So I've been saved for a while. And do you know how easy it is? Do you know what God's been kicking my tail with this week? And Scott, it's great that you've done all this stuff. It's great that you've, you've got that set up out there. You got the donuts this morning. We got everything in place. Okay, the songs went good. The, everything went great. You guys, the performance was so good. All the while missing the one that the performance is about. Man, it's so easy for me to get caught up in the apathy. To go through the motions and to do. Why? Because I, I, have, I, I have to perform every week. I have to get a lesson ready. I, I have to get in the Word. And if I'm not careful, that'll be the heart and motivation of what I do every week. And so I beg God to break me and help me to remember of what he has done for me. It's not a have to, it's a I get to. And the reality is this, is before I preach to anybody else in a room, God has already ripped me apart and preached to me this morning the reality of the cross. And so for me, as I come in this morning, as I gather in this place, I'm reminded real quick that the resurrected Savior has made me a son of his. I don't have to do anything, but I get to do it. The heart motivation behind that changes absolutely everything. So I'm no different. And I'm not saying that we're going to execute um, obedience perfectly. But there should, be, there should be an execution of obedience somewhat. And so I guess what scares me is this, is doing this Easter thing is a dangerous game. You come, you gather here, you listen. We, we heard the story of who, who this is about, the reality of, of the cross and what Jesus Christ has done for us, the reality of the, the empty tomb. And you come and you hear that. And you listen to it, but you don't step out in obedience. And all it does is as you leave that way, it just hardens your heart a little bit more. And so if there's no obedience rooted in faith, then there's probably no salvation. If there's no desire and want of Jesus in your life, then there's probably no salvation. All I know is this, is if you can keep on sinning, 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 and there's no conviction, there's probably no Savior. And so I think the most loving thing that I can challenge you with this morning is this, is to check your heart. Do you, you may believe in an empty tomb, but do you believe in the one that laid down in that empty tomb for you to the point of where you're willing to lay down everything and follow out in obedience who he is and what he has done and what he asks of us. And hear me, church, I'm just going to lay it out there because there's an expectation of holiness for us. It's not just get saved to get to heaven. No, it's get saved to get Jesus. That's the great part about it. 
And so as we put our faith and trust in Christ, he starts to take some of this stuff. Man, I, I, I could tell a story with the best of them. I could, uh, don't even get me started on pride. Worry, I could get worried in a moment, just like anybody else. But as I grow closer in Christ, as I focus on him, as I get in his word and do relationship with the resurrected Jesus, as I do that, those things start to fade away. I'm not saying that they don't raise their head every once in a while and come after me all full on assault. But the closer I get to Jesus, the more I start to resemble him, the more I start to fall in love with him, the more my obedience grows to him. So I just want to challenge you this morning because I know that this may be a one shot for you. And I have been praying like crazy this week that the sovereign God would rescue you. How amazing would it be the fact that Jesus in this moment on Resurrection Sunday would resurrect somebody from the dead here. Uh, Would just bring you to the realization that you don't believe in Jesus. And I don't care if you've been coming to church for five years, 10 years, 50 years. That doesn't make you saved. What makes you saved is the reality of what Jesus has done on the cross for you and your faith in him. You're living out that glad obedience to him. Those kinds of things. So what I want to do here this morning is just ask you this. Are you his? What does that empty tomb mean to you? What has that empty tomb done in your life, in your heart? And it should rock your world. The reality of that empty tomb and the cross should be something that you never, ever, ever get over. Man, it affects me every day. Every day. So I want to ask you the question, has it you? Has it done that to you? So what I want to do here just in this moment, in the quietness of this moment, this, and there's no hoax, there's no anything, because we're about to move into something what I believe to be very, very serious to our faith. Some of the things that we do, the ordinances that we do as a church, are extremely serious. So I thought this morning one of the greatest things that we could do as a body of believers is partake in communion. Because what the scripture says that that does, it says, is that we proclaim until he comes that he is the resurrected God. That he is alive, that he has conquered death, defeated sin, and death. And so what I've done is I've, I've read this and I've looked at this and just, just listen to this for a moment. Corinthians chapter 11. It says this. It says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of our Lord. What Paul says is, is if you come and you eat of this in an unworthy manner, so if you come as a lost person this morning in this place and you partake in communion, because I believe the table is set for those that belong to Jesus. So if you come in this place this morning and you don't know Jesus as Savior, and this isn't to shame anybody. There's nothing wrong for sitting in a seat and not taking communion. There's been times in my life where I just didn't feel like I was at the place where I needed to partake. I need God to work me over a little bit more to help me see my sin as horrific as it is. But what Paul says is this, is that if you come and you take in an unworthy manner, not knowing Jesus as your Savior, what you're saying is yes to hell with me. That is true. All of my sin, all of my shame, all of my rebellion against God, I am worthy of judgment and damnation and eternal punishment. That's what you say you do if you take this and you don't know Jesus as Savior. Is that serious? You better believe it because look at, what he, look at what he says. Just listen for a moment what he says in verse 20. He says, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And, and I want to say this because I don't want to scare everybody away from taking communion this morning. But what I want to do is simply this. Is that there's not one person in this room that's worthy to partake of this. And it's only through the reality of what Jesus Christ has done for us. It's only in the relationship with Christ that we can even approach the table. So there's not one worthy here this morning of partaking of the, of, of the table. But it's because of what Christ has done for us. So for those of us in Christ, we come and we eat. And look at what Paul says. He says in verse 30, that's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves, truly, we would not be judged. But when we were judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that, the, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. What Paul tells the believers at Corinth is before you come to the table and you partake of the elements of the table, and check yourself. Check your heart. 
Is there sin, is there sin that's fractured your relationship with Christ? Or do you belong to Jesus? And so what I want to do this morning in the seriousness of this moment and the reality of what this moment is, I just want to ask you, do you belong to him? Scott, I'm here on Easter. That, that doesn't make you saved. Scott, I dressed up. That doesn't make you. I carried my Bible with me. That doesn't save you more than you name it. It's a personal relationship with Jesus that saves you. So I want to do something weird for a moment. What I want to do is this. I just want to ask you, are you Jesus's? And the thing is this, you know, if God is sitting there and just kind of stirring in your soul, in your heart, hey, maybe I've come Easter after Easter, maybe I've come every day of my life since I was whatever. See, that's what scares me to death about my boys. They're here all the time. And so all the time, what I'm doing is trying to pour into them the reality of, son, you being here doesn't save you. Jesus is who saves you. What he's done on the cross saves you. That's what saves you, the reality of him. So I, your attendance doesn't make you holy, make you right. You hear me? It's loving Jesus with everything in you. That's what saves you and rescues you. Your faith in him, buddy. You hear me? Don't you ever forget that. Not you being here or carrying a Bible or saying the right things. That, that does nothing but the reality of what Jesus has done on the cross. And so what I want to do this morning is ask you this. Are you his? And so in the stillness of this moment with Franklin just playing, no heads bowed, no eyes closed, there's none of that, none of that. Is there anybody in the room this morning that says, yes, Scott, I need Jesus? And if that's the case, I'm going to ask you just to stand right there where you're at. If you're saying, I need Jesus as my Savior. And I do this for a reason. Because what I've learned is this, is if we're not willing to stand for Jesus in a room that is for us and that supports us and that loves him, we will never stand in a world that despises him and hates us. And so maybe just in this moment, Jesus is stirring in your heart, and you're saying, hey, for the first time, I need Jesus as my Savior. Anybody at all in this moment, before we move into to communion and celebrating anymore, any, anybody, would you stand? And I'm not going to drag this out. I'm not going to, you know if you're his or not. And you know if you need him as Savior or not. I mean, how awesome would it be, the fact that God would rescue you on Resurrection Sunday? Just in the stillness of this moment. Yes, I need Jesus as my Savior. Anybody at all? Not a place to be scared, not a place to fear. Awesome, buddy. That is awesome. Yes, church. That is awesome. Look at me. Thank you for being brave. You hear me? The greatest decision that you've ever made in your life is right here this morning. You hear me? You stay standing for me for just anybody else in the stillness of this moment. Say, I need Jesus as my Savior. Not a ploy, not a, just in the stillness of this moment. As God maybe just stirs in your heart the reality of the empty tomb and what he's done on the cross for you. You talking about love, church? That's love that he would die for us. Anybody else in the stillness of this moment saying, I need Jesus? That's right. You, yeah, yep, Brody. This is my little guy, and he has been fighting his. He is so ready to get baptized, and we have never done this. And so we're going to do this this morning. I mean, he, I don't, what do I do with that? I can't tell him to sit down. I don't want to tell him to sit down. Look at me. I love you, and it's the greatest decision. You, you hear me? That's the greatest decision you'll ever make is to love Jesus. And I don't care what anybody else says. You keep your eyes on him. You hear me? You love him, and you desire him, and you follow him. Both of you, you hear me? Everything in you. Anybody else, just stay standing. In the stillness of this moment, God's maybe stirring in your heart, and you said, yes, I need Jesus. All i got to say is if two little guys can do it, if you're an old whatever, then God can save you too. Don't, don't you fear, man. The greatest decision you'll ever make is to put your trust and faith in Jesus. So in the stillness of this moment, God may be stirring in your heart. I love you, man. We're going to celebrate that. Yes, sir. <laughs> love you, brother. Greatest decision we'll ever make is to follow Jesus. Thank you for that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Anybody else just in the stillness of this moment say, I want Jesus as my Savior if you just stand. I'm not going to go much longer. You know if God's stirring, saying, yes, I need to make Jesus my Savior. He defeated death for us, loves us. 
So he says to check ourselves, not to approach this table in an unworthy manner. And so this is the instructions that Paul gives us. He says this. You guys can have a seat. This is what he says as we move into this time of taking communion. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He says, In the same way also he took the cup after uh, supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So what we're doing this morning is we're going to partake in communion. As we partake in communion, we're saying, yes, we believe that the tomb was empty. Yes, we believe that Jesus is who he says says he is. Yes, we believe that he is God in the flesh. And that he has made a way to purchase us and redeem us. And so what I want to do, Franklin's going to play for a few moments. I want you just to spend time praying if you want to pray, if you want to come down and partake of communion. And it's going to be a little bit different this morning. And what I mean by that is simply this, is that we've we've got the bread, which is the body. And we've got the juice, which is the blood. And that's what it is. It's, it's grape juice and it's bread. And if God moves in you this morning and says, yes, I want to partake in communion, then you come down and what you do is you take the bread and you dip it and you take it. And you can do that as a family. You can do that as an individual. However, God moves you this morning. But before we move into that, I want to make sure that we don't partake of this in an unworthy manner. That we realize how serious this is. That we, in partaking of communion and entering into this time where we approach the table, we are saying that we believe that Jesus Christ is Lord of Lord and King of Kings and that what he has accomplished on the cross has set us free from sin, from shame, and has given us life eternal. So I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know what God's doing. They're going to play kind of lead in this moment is if you feel led to come and partake of communion then you come to the table if you need to pray whatever you need to do we're going to do that and then we're going to celebrate like crazy with our song at the end and send you out jesus we love you lord god we need you thank you for the table thank you for the reality of what this morning stands for Jesus, I pray you move and speak in this place this morning god thank you for setting the captive free god thank you for saving in this place this morning God, these three, oh, Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you would rescue and redeem. God, I love you, and I thank you, and I praise you. All this is for your glory and your honor. In your name we pray. Amen. You respond as God sees fit. They're going to lead us here in a moment. If you need to pray, if you want to come and partake, come on, and the table is, is open, and you take. You hear me? 